Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Crowcast Podcast. I'm Shane. Hey, I'm Ronnie. And these are the audio versions of the interviews we've had with our special guests on Crowcast. This episode is with Bruce John Dickinson. Oh, man, what an episode, dude. Um, Incredible, bud. I know we say that everyone, um, what an episode, but it's just becoming a a weekly bank of knowledge. Ah, oh, mate, he was absolutely incredible. We knew he would be, just because we know the history of Bruce and where he's been and I know his influence on us as a band. But I was just, all the way through, I was thinking, if there's any unsigned band out there now listening to this man talking, what what an insight. What a, what a head start. You know, that's what Bruce does, yeah? Yeah, it was audio gold for me. Yeah. Um, it, it was just something that, I kind of say it during the the interview of, I wish we had some of that advice back in the day. 100%. Um, we, we said it all through it, didn't we? Like afterwards as well. If only we had Bruce as kids, you know. Um, just, you're right, the way he attacks things, the way he talks about music and how it should feel the artistry behind it as opposed to the, the theory side of music. Um, and the, the fact he's re-educating students now in that manner is incredible. I, I, absolutely incredible, man. Absolutely incredible guitarist. It was a great episode, dude. Yeah, and yet again, we had like a, a backup of a previous exclusive from a, an old episode of Crowcast, uh, but I don't want to spoil that. Um, so Bruce kind of goes on about that. And like you said, a brilliant guitarist, mate, um, but, but a very realistic character as well. And unbelievably realistic. He's honest. He tells it from his side of the, the, the coin, so to speak. You know, he's, he had a number one album, dude. You know, he, he saw the big time. He toured with so many big bands that you'll get to hear on the podcast. I don't want to spoil too much. It's just a brilliant, brilliant episode. Definitely some truth bombs within this episode. So should we get into it? Here we go. Strap in. This is Crowcast Podcast. <laughs> guest ah oh, please man yeah i'm so excited about this yeah. ladies and gentlemen crow family please welcome the wonderful bruce dickinson hey how are you doing hey. <laughs> how's it going man yeah thanks for having me i should probably say I'm bruce john dickinson for anyone who's disappointed that i'm not now we've got a real deal man we got a real deal tonight well thanks for having me on ah uh, pleasure man it's, it's like i said to you off here we're, we're thrilled to have you on dude um such such a guy who's like been there and done it, been in such success in bands, but not just uh, you know, the industry dude, like the back of your hand. I mean, we were an upcoming band a few years ago, and and the the knowledge that you know, and we kind of I remember us doing uh, Rambling Man. Do you remember that, Ron? Yes. And we were like, oh, yeah. Bruce is going to be there. He's sorting out them, um, watching all the upcoming bands, and, and we felt like we had to perform that that day. Yeah, um, yeah, I remember it. It was really good, you know. But uh, that whole thing actually. You know, I'd been out of it for nearly 20 years before Little Angels got back together, which was 2012. So we did like a, you know, a, a summer of a couple of festivals and then a little tour, you know. Yeah. And, um, so I wasn't really, I wouldn't say I kind of knew what quite what was going on. It had been 20 years since I played and, you know, but it was Danny Bowes actually. When I got Colour of Noise together, yeah. uh, I learned a lot from Danny because I rang him up because um, Danny's a singer in Thunder, obviously, and, I noticed that he was he's from the same era as uh, Little Angels, and I noticed Thunder was still doing Wembley Arena, and I was like, well, he must he must know what he's doing, and he was brilliant with me because he kind of caught me up to speed, and then I met guys like you, 
And actually, I learned more from the younger band than they ever did from me because I learned about the whole DIY ethic and whole new ways of doing things, you know. So you're very kind. But, uh, um, but it was good at that stage, you know. And yeah, still, man. Still will yeah. Be yeah. It's when it all kind of um, it kind of escalated from there, didn't it, Ron? That that yeah. that, that, that show we had, we opened in the, the day on the in the big blue tent. First and, on, um, yeah, yeah. It, was- it, it it did well for a lot of bands that stage. If they delivered on the day, um, yeah. it had the potential to kind of really launch people and kind of just it. It wasn't. A, it never is a kind of magic kind of magic wand for anything but it's a good platform to kick you off um there's been loads of people gone on from there you know so it's very satisfying that isn't it well, it we, is me we had prior to that we had like the first thing we did in a band which you might love this or maybe other bands have done it um we made a list of all the bands in the scene that we wanted yeah. to play with that was yeah. an unrealistic list now anybody can write muse and and yeah. bloody full fighters we made a realistic list of all the hot bands or anybody with any experience yeah. um and then we just tried to get on support gigs or festival yeah. slots and etc and leading to rambling man was a few key gigs um like hard rock hell playing with the choir boys there was a few yeah. things leading up all leading to that event so i know what shane meant um it was such a special day for us because number one we were opening it up and secondly, we knew like you you were going to be there as well, and you you had we'd met you before just briefly. You were really busy with color and noise, um, but even then, I can't remember what you said. But it was we were talking about in the van. It was um, you just kind of said, "Just get out there, guys. Just get out there." And and you were well, you were almost like just make a noise. Do you know what I mean? Just keep making I, a noise. Like I think what you guys have is a bit of you have pace and energy, and you're involved in us all in the story. That's what you're doing now, and and. and- Fans often don't realise what the job is. It's not putting a record out. For that stage, you know, that year you played, there was more. There was about 360-something bands applied for it. Um, and out of that, maybe 150 were reasonably competent and credible, you know. But most of them not working at the pace. And it's like that trajectory thing, isn't it? It's like, yeah. you know, you guys are here, and then a year later you're there. So you've got this kind of, you know, thing going on. And so when... That stage, looking behind the scenes, is, is really fascinating because I deliberately compiled a shortlist with a guy called George Donahue, and he, George does all the real hard work. And he's a young lad and he's got good taste and that. We put this list of about 35 bands together, but we deliberately don't pick the winner because too much conflict of interest because I might know someone in the band or whatever, you know. So it's Chris Bingham from Rambling Man who picks it. And we do tend to order it almost as the front half of the of the 35 he's definitely a bit stronger you know and then you look at what happens when they pick the bands and it's always about where were they last year where are they now you know and then is it any good do we like it and i think that actually there's not so many bands in that category as you think there's thousands of bands but there's only a handful doing what you guys are doing Thank you, man. But I, I remember you. I remember you listening to you doing like online videos and stuff about yep. um, doing things right as a young band. Um, set list is so important. You said the story, the highs and lows, the journey of a live show. All that dude was just like, you know, that's what bands need to hear when they're starting off. You know, honing that craft, getting yeah. that first. It's a bit of a lost art. Some of this stuff, and we learned it off people like Bon Jovi and Brian Adams, of course. You know, you, you just <laughs> they be telling you this stuff and. Um, 
And also back in, in the old days, before the internet, you did have a kind of structure around you. So you had A&R people of varying kind of levels of experience and musical ability. But the fact that you were kind of accountable, um, you had to sort these things out. And the, I think the thing is these days, bands are a bit harder because they can do what they like. And no one says, hang on a minute, just needs to be a bit, a little bit better, doesn't it? Yeah. Some of those old school skills in the studio and live, um, they're kind of, they're not lost, but there's only a select few people who kind of cotton onto it. I would say Rival Sons would be a good example of a band that came through relatively recently, but they just had a bit of a higher standard. And it just went like that. Temperance movement, again, from they supported Little Angels in 2012. And it just kicked off because the record was great and they kind of understood this stuff, you know. You've got to figure it out for yourself now, though. That's the trouble. Yeah, but it's, I don't know, it's more rewarding, I find, because we, we've come from a background where, you know, you used to put flyers up rather than posts on MySpace or, or yeah. um, you know, so we've we've come from that background. But I find it more rewarding now. Me and Shane talk about this constantly. It's so much harder. You know, you used to think it was hard back in a day to travel from Wales to London to put posters up to promote your gig. Yeah. And now you think with the internet there, a lot half will say it's easier, which they're correct, but there yeah. is harder because there's so much of it now. So you almost yeah, yeah. get buried. So you have to yeah, yeah. you have to think outside the box to be noticed even more. Your live show has to be even better now. Do yeah. you know what I mean? It's sure. people's people's like attention span isn't there as it was. Do you know what I mean? So it gets more hard to get people to pay attention to what you do online every three months. It gets harder, you know, harder and harder. Um, but it, for, you, for what we do, it'll always come down to the live show, and that's why it's a bit frustrating at the moment because, you know, at the end of the day, we live or die on that and the records we make, you know, And but you need one to give life to the other. Putting a great record like out right now would be probably not the right thing to do because no one would notice it, you know. Um, yeah. So I think for rock and roll, it'll just it'll always come down to the live show, you know. Yeah. yeah. 100%, but but um, just for people watching, um, where are you to, Bruce? What? Sorry, say that again. Just for people watching, where are you right now? I'm in Waterbury. I'm in the middle of Brighton. Um, so I'm in the college. I'm on my own, partially because it's this time of night, and partially because it's lockdown, you know. So Waterbury's a music college that we set up. Me and a drummer called Adam Bushell. Now, I've worked with Adam in music education for 25 years. He's, he's drums in a band called Freak Power, which some of them are older members of the audience may remember. Um, and, yeah, we've been three years in now, so we've got now four buildings, 250 students, and they, they're studying degrees or masters. And it's, I guess it's been amazing. I wouldn't say it's been easy. It's like everything that we, that we do. It's got its challenges. But it's... Um, What's been really satisfying is some of the people who are actually quite big bands have come to, or quite established in their music careers have come to do the masters. Yeah. Um, what I love about it is it's, it's this, based on this principle of work-based learning. So it's not like, you know, say if you were studying with us on the, on the masters, if we wouldn't be teaching you stuff. First of all, we'd be picking apart what you're doing with the band and what would make it an MA would be, your research and your critical reflections. So you kind of add this extra layer of sort of academic stuff on the top. But essentially, it's making sense of what you're doing. And our job is to kind of turbocharge it a little bit or join the dots and fill in any gaps, you know. So it's a bit like we test it a little bit. And it's a little bit like a, a little bit like a cross between an A&R 
function and a kind of business development function. So it's quite entrepreneurial, but strangely, the culture at Waterbury, it's it's that kind of approach to business that someone like Jack White would have, where it's kind of it's a, an extra creative part of what you do, not necessarily about classic notions of success and the bottom line and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's quite holistic in that regard. So so what made you do it? Did you just see a gap in the market and just thought there's, no, there's nothing like this? And Well, I've, I've always, my old man's a headmaster. So when Angels split, I started teaching guitar. I always said I wouldn't do teaching, you know, because I'm my old man. <laughs> uh, my brother's the same. Jimmy was in the band. He's the keyboard player. He now runs music courses at Bass Bar Uni. So there's obviously something genetic in there. And then there was a college in Guildford setting up called the Academy of, Contempor- of Contemporary Music. And this was mid-90s. And I just had this idea. I didn't like this, the way a lot of people came out of music colleges and they could play really fast, but they didn't have a sound. They couldn't play in time. They didn't have to make records. And I just thought it'd be better to make it more a little bit more rock and roll and look at music that people might consider to be simple, be it Bob Dylan or The Clash. And also look at Frank Zappa and all the jazz fusion stuff. But to respect simple music like the Ramones, like like um, Rocket to Russia or, or the Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash, I always hold that up as the the most perfect rock and roll song from yeah. title down to arrangement to everything. It's, it's the bare bones fundamental of genius, you know, in that song. And But people wouldn't study that in music colleges because they thought it was easy because it's three chords. And they're nuts. Because if it was easy, there'd be a lot more records like that. But it's harder to teach that stuff than stuff that's kind of concept, you know, kind of more more complex in its harmony. It's that's easier to teach than that three chord magic, you know. So we did both, and um, the trouble with that that college was it grew and grew and grew, and all my mates were still in bands, you know. So there's Mark Rich and Feeder and Skunk and Nancy and Color Shaker were kicking off, and we we're getting all them all in the college, and the thing was growing, but it wasn't my business. So in 2001, with three other guys, I set up um, uh, BIM in Brighton, which became Brighton Institute of Modern Music, it used to stand for. And that, where the academy in Guildford was growing quite quick, we'd grown that to about 600 students, BIM just exploded. And it was like the equivalent of being in a band like Guns N' Roses, where you, you lose control of it, it's growing faster and bigger than you could possibly have control over. Yeah. So I sold my shares in there in 2012 um, and floated around in education. Meanwhile, BIM grew and grew and grew and became the biggest education provider for music in the world in terms of student numbers. But um, it became a different thing. It started with a punk ethic and then it became something much more part of the establishment. And my role in music education, every 10 years, I seem to need to shake it up and and where I felt, so by 2015, I was kind of retired and I was qualified to be a, a charter skipper. So I was taking people out bass fishing in a little boat and we'd done the band thing. And then people rang me up to do bits of consultation in education. And, and I was doing the rising stage and mixing with guys like you. And I started to feel like music education had drifted away from what people actually needed which was to understand this DIY ethic. Because now the only people who want a record deal in the established sense of a record deal are people who don't understand what it is. 
Yeah. Still the young people saying, you know, so-and-so might sign me. And they're like, you're like so what do you mean sign? Sign you to what? You know, what? And, and anyone who actually looks at a record deal and can break it down into the half a dozen terms that it is, um, there'd have to be a really good reason to, to sign it. So we wanted to teach this new, the new ways of doing things like, like you guys do. And people like, you know, we work with, with Corey Wong, for example, from Wolfpack. They've taken a band from a get from the living room to Madison Square Garden on a DIY ethic. So there's no limits to that now. Yeah. So that's it really. So we set up a college, but it's tough. You know, you've got to put, you know, remortgage your house, put some cash in and go in the city and do the Dragon's Den thing. Um and come back with a couple of million quid to start a college, you know, and 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 balance the needs of the university and the investors and the rock and roll and the, the craft and the art, you know. And here we are three years later and we're we're doing all right, you know. Despite incredible, dude. I mean, Ronnie, you've said this. We could have done with that type of college when we yeah. were growing up. My God, because we were. We've talked about this on other crowdcasts. Our our music teacher was incredible. Our inspirational, absolutely, was incredible. But all the things you're talking about there, it was always about the classical side of things. It was a way, a different way of learning music. You had to learn this first in order to do this yeah. into your next step. Yeah. What you say about it? The, yeah. And if you follow that logic, you know, with guitar playing, you can learn certain scales in a certain order. You, go, duh, 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 you end up with Steve Vai and beyond, you know. Um, but it's craft, that. Yeah. And what's hard to teach is art. So that you, I, I like to have a, a blend between craft and art yeah. in your appreciation of, of music, you know. And when you get a great mix of those two, like you did with Van Halen, for example, then, you know, that's... That's magic, isn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that was us when they were on. We were more art than craft. <laughs> yeah, we, we were definitely. I'm not ashamed. Like at one no. stage, I was ashamed to say it in a way because we we knew a lot of very. I'm going to call them musos. I know they hate it, but yeah, we, we were very gifted. Yeah, yeah, they know that they know their guitar backwards. Yeah. Um, but you ask them to get in a band sometimes and maybe write a song. They they don't know. They, yeah. they overcomplicate it or they don't know how to do you know what I mean like you said bringing it back to that clash scenario I'm going to yeah, use that in the future that's perfect that is, is you know sadly for those guys um, that high level of craft is quite common and I say that as a guitar player spent yeah. eight hours a day practicing you know but you know I've got students at the college that are 18 who could rip the guitar apart you know and they could do stuff that I couldn't even dream of doing, but you have to, you have to know what to do with it and how to apply it. And so I suppose that is, it's like a, the producer's role in the studio, isn't it? To get the best out of the artist, something like a yeah. tennis kind of relationship, yeah. you know. But you know, craft is common, and art actually is still is still rare. Yeah, it's it's strange. Like we we were kids, we had um, a, a teacher that believed in us. He yeah. saw the art, he saw the creativity where. Right. We could listen to something and um, just play it and then improvise. He, he was all yeah. for that. But then you could tell he was structured by the own structure of the music yeah. that he the had. Curriculum. To, it was a yeah. curriculum. He was he had to teach us. Yeah, and he was banging off. And that's yeah. when he lost us. Um, yeah. and also, you kind of need flexibility these days because I uh, did a TED Talk, what, a couple of years ago now. And I said, universities have got to kind of wake up a little bit because going to a particular building and sitting down and going, now I'm going to learn and it's nine o'clock on a Monday. It's nuts. It's like driving to Hull to watch you, to watch somebody else's Netflix. Yeah. And to, to be taught stuff without someone understanding where you're coming from 
what what you need because you might already have a lot of that stuff down you know so yeah. i think you need the flexibility and then you, you, you can go on the road as long as you get wi-fi in the production office or something you can do your degree or whatever or do stuff like this you know it's yeah. a different place now but we're, we're moving at the moment while covid's going on we've always had this idea of online and on site and the blend between the two is quite important but we're working on this idea of on-demand higher education so when you're doing your degree you have your lecture absolutely at a time that suits you whether it's two o'clock in the morning or 6am in a place that suits you or you come in to do it and if you want a tutorial you don't book it for a week's time next september i'd like all musicians to be able to come in and go to a, a social space like the, the student union bar that we have they do the business to sort the band out and then if they need a bit of help they get their tutorial with someone who knows what they're on about there and then like the genius bar at apple or like the cheese counter at sainsbury's you just you get your little ticket and you wait 10 minutes or so and then the person that buys you is someone who's been in a band done it got the education side as well and they can help you with your career your songwriting or your assignment for your degree you know um, and i think the on-demand aspect of education is is the future you know that's that's, that's brilliant, brilliant. It's brilliant. Oh, we'll see how we see how we do with it. <laughs> no, it's perfect. I mean, this is why we were excited about having you on because, like, to us, this is we really love this. This is something we focus on and it resonates with us because, like Shane said, our teacher knew the curriculum didn't work, so he yeah. gave us he gave us a space which oh, would yeah. be the music room every dinner time. So rather oh, than going out, we chose whether yeah. it be football or music, and we chose music then. Um, brilliant. So he created that. That's all he did, Bruce. Was like the old well, school because he created an environment. And I, I, I've, yeah. I've got older in education. I stopped telling people stuff. Um, you know, and life teaches people the hard lessons. When I was a young teacher, I felt like there had to be this kind of tough love kind of thing. Pull, you know, work hard, and 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 now I don't because life beats the crap out of people when you get out there. And our job early on is to give them a safe space to try stuff out, experiment, um, encourage people, and also be open-minded because what they're doing might have a whole load of cultural references and nuances that I've not no idea about. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. When I first started teaching in the 90s, very concerned with a structure that would get on the radio, you know, that kind of get into the track quick, get the hooks there, get to the chorus. Well, it's irrelevant now for a lot of musical style. You've got a huge resurgence of instrumental virtuoso players that play somewhere like Arctangents, you know. Now, I don't know if a 15-minute arrangement is genius or a total mistake in that context of that yeah. scene, but, those, but the people that are in it do. Yeah. So you've just got to create the right environment and the, the secret of A&R and artist development is asking the right question at the right time. And if the timing's right, you'll hear it. Yeah. And you can't put an old head on young shoulders, but you don't have to. Yeah. You've got yeah. So I think in some ways your music teacher just did everything he needed to, didn't he? He just gave you the space. Gave us the space. Yeah. Um, he gave us a little tape recorder one because we were we were starting to write stuff without realizing we were writing it. Yeah. Shane would do yeah, yeah. whether it be chords on the piano or guitars, yeah. and then we started forming what is a band, but it wasn't yeah. a band because it wasn't in our mind to kind of 
Right, we're going yeah. to get a band. This was like we were 14, so it was like we could just play. We didn't know yeah. what we were doing. We were just playing. And yeah. and then he kind of egged us on. And so we'd have a little tape player and we put paper. We've mentioned this before. We put paper in front of the tape player so it wouldn't distort the sound. Oh, yeah. Um, and we'd get, we, yeah, it was just little things. We were learning that as we were going. Um, then one day he pulled this trolley in with like the most ancient computer, we're in a shame. And he was like, oh, you're in the writing. Here we go. And then all of a sudden he egged us on to, to yeah. kind of start doing the writing on there. And you were just doing like simple keyboard or, you know, if you were more advanced, you'd be doing, and it's brilliant. It's just providing that space, that, that channel, but all the rest of it, no, it's almost like he kind of gave us a pass on that. He was like, yeah, yeah. you don't have yeah. to learn that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, yeah. I think that I think that's also the ability to pick and choose what you want to learn is, is important for education as well. Because if it's prescriptive, uh, music theory is a good example. Always banging my head against the wall trying to get, you know, the vocal class or the drum class to, to want to do theory. It's good for you. You should do it. Well, there's loads of people that don't know the theory. So so do it if you want to do it. It's there. Come to the class, go study it online. But if it's not your thing, come back to it later. You can learn it on YouTube anyway. So... Mate, what, we had this conversation the other day. I can't remember who it was with, um, but we were we were genuinely talking about how much we've learned uh, during COVID. Um, yeah. So I've had the time now. Life hasn't gone in the way where I can research guitarists on YouTube or how their processes. Because there's so many little geniuses out there, and they're on their Twitch channels, and they're on this, and they're they're, they're writing songs. But the other thing is, as well, it's like drum music. Um, I've been actually learning how to, to read and write drum music. And we were talking about this when we, Shane, of how, how we've yeah. managed to, like, you know, stretch that knowledge just because we've got the time to do it, like, you know, so. Amazing, because, you know, we've all got this. So we can find anything out that we want. And we can learn anything. The trouble is there's so much of it. And yeah. then the universities, some of them are still going, well, we've got all the sensible, the great knowledge. Well, no, you haven't, actually, because if you actually look at a lot of these lectures, they're, they're 10 years out of date, especially with music. You know, anything that we taught two years ago is probably out of date now completely with, with the developments in, you know. So um, actually some of the world's best educators are sitting on TikTok, you know, or wherever, you know. Yeah. But what people need help with is making sense of it so it's coherent, so, you, you know, it links to you're here, you want to be there. What is the path? And that's what they need help with, not here's a music theory. You know, no one wants to pay nine grand a year to get stuff they can find out free. You know, yeah, yeah. So, higher education is about space, environment, and encouraging people to think critically. Um, you know, my, my father in law, he uh, he gets the uh, Daily Mirror, I think it is, and um, it kills me sometimes because he, he'll take the headline and, as if it's a fact, you know, and and it's right now with the way politics is, you don't want generation of young people who take things at face value whether it's whether it's on you know social media or it's a newspaper headline or whatever you need people to go hang on a minute yeah you know is is that thing that trump said really true yeah um and you know and similarly here with with politicians it's very dangerous if we if we lose the critical thinking thing so that's what it's all about and it's empowering for art it's always about artist empowerment isn't it if you've got that confidence you can i couldn't you know, raise funds to start a business without having the MA behind me that I did in back 
because I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it, I think, you know. Yeah, but there's no way that college would even exist now if it wasn't from your background. Like your you the the insight you know, the creative side of you. Because I can't help but think, dude. Like you're a passionate you're a passionate guy. You could tell I listening to you talk about it. Like <laughs> do you wish that did this come at the right time in your musical career? Did you did you think, yeah, now I'm going to go and do this? Was this always something you wanted to do? You saw the industry? Oh, no, I didn't or... want to do it. I didn't want to be like my old man, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just wanted to be a guitar player. And I, was, I didn't have natural ability as a guitar player. And um, I forced myself through sheer will to be a reasonable player. But education, I just sort of seemed to know what to do. But also... Um, my job is to sort of make the academic case for rock and roll. So with, you know, with Rocket to Russia by the Romance, so hang on a minute, now this is really important work here. Um, it's not three chords. You know, the sex business, and musicologists get it. The ones who talk about culture, they know why the sex business is important as a stylistic yeah. thing. You know, but then why is it when they start teaching music, they dismiss it? Yeah. Yes. You know, and... and and we all know that simple, simple stuff is hard to do convincingly and authentically. You know, blues yeah. being a classic example, you know, it's got to have a certain weight to it, you know. So, so I love all that stuff. And, um, and the main driver for this is you want a generation of musicians who can do what you do and think for themselves and design their own futures in music, you know. But it's a pain in the ass. You know, it's like... It's like... Um, it's like running a band, man. There's the equivalent of loading the amp in the van in two o'clock in the morning. You know, there's there's a lot of that stuff for the for the when you get the magic moments when some young person plays you an amazing tune or something. There's a lot of grunt work, but that's life, isn't it? So like, so being a guitarist, then. So let's talk about being a guitarist. <laughs> um, what was what what were your go to people, dude? Uh, as as far as guitarists were concerned, the people you looked up to, the people that made you pick up a guitar. Like uh, it's, there's a one particular album that was very important, which is the Black Rose album by Lizzie, because it's got Gary Moore on it, and <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a combination of um, Phil Lynott's lyric writing and his songwriting. Uh, Scott Gorham was absolutely on fire on that record, and then Gary and the whole thing coming together in this magic, and also the sound of the record. So you'll see behind me there's probably a, a, a Cornell version of a plexi. Um, and it's that sound, we always talk about this plexi Marshall, which is the plexiglass front on it, which is a nickname. So it's a 60s into the 70s sort of era Marshall head. It's got a particular sound. It sounds like it's burning. And um, it's on, you know, early Thin Lizzy is really that, that sound. And it's just in my DNA that I wanted to sound like that. I wanted to be in Thin Lizzy and live and dangerous as well. And then I saw a picture of Brian Robertson when I was 15 and I wanted a Black Les Paul. And to this day, I still want to be in Thin Lizzy and play a Black Les Paul like Brian Robertson. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I've got to be honest, dude, your guitar is lovely. I love your Les Paul. Yeah. Uh, thank you. It's a one-off that black one. Because I bought recently, it's a 1979 Les Paul Custom, so it's got a maple neck. So it's got this weird like attack. John Sykes, same thing, that classic black um, cold sweat kind of sound. It's kind of... It's sort of faster than the earlier Les Pauls. It's a bit more aggressive. Yeah. And that, with, that, yeah, but I bought another one, same year, the white one. 
it's not it's good it's really good but it's not the black the black was a very weird guitar and it's got a very pronounced kind of mid-range like brian may kind of that middle kind of frequency you know yeah. used to, i used to stick it into a box or a, a an old marshall you know so there's nothing there's nothing unusual about about it but it's very uncompromised i, I, I can only ever play very very loud yeah because you have to work those amps very hard when Angels got back together, it was very hard to find a sound man that, that that could cope with people playing at normal volume to me, you know. Um, they expect you to have like this kind of mouse fart volume on stage. These days. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, like, why? You know, and who shows it anyway? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's again, it's, it's, these musicians have given control for the gig to the sound man. Yeah. And yeah. it's like your mix, man. It's 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 my mix, and half it's going to come off stage. You and sound exactly like our guitarist, Shayna. It's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's not. You know, it, it was always done like that, and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, you got to watch your hearing and all that, and the people in the audience need to need to put plugs in if it's a small show and everything. But it's not that loud. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's, you know. So, how, when did you buy, when did you get that Les Paul? Uh, be about 18, I suppose. But I found it in a junk shop and it was in the right state. And Les Paul's are very unfashionable. So I had um, a Kramer. I think I've got one hanging up somewhere. Yeah, it's one of the real up. So I had this. This is a 1985. Can you see the red one? Yeah. yeah. 1985 Kramer. So I was, it, it had two interesting things when I was... So I'd be just 18 when I got that. And it had the banana headstock. So that was an Eddie, Eddie Van Allen designed one. It had a banana headstock and it had a Floyd Rose tremolo, which was like the new thing. So I thought it was the coolest kid in Yorkshire because I did, could do the whooping. And, and my <laughs> mum got it for me for me, um, my 18th birthday. But then I was probably 19 or 20 and I found this Les Paul and they were very unfashionable because everyone was buying guitars like that. And um, I've got it for 200 quid. What? And then all the finish side flaked off, and my mate Charlie, the artist, scratched all the designs in it. And it was just a, almost a spare guitar then, so it didn't really matter. And then it just stayed like that. And then um, I gave it to, there was a lad who was a student in the late 90s, a guitar student, it's called Chris Leonard. And he got a gig on a TV show, and he was like in the house band on a Saturday morning. And um, he didn't really have a pro level guitar, and it was a pro gig. So I said, well, I wasn't playing at the time, and I was just teaching. I said, well, you have that, have that Les Paul, and, and uh, you can have it cheap. And I said, how much have you got? And he had 300 quid, so I gave it to him for 300 quid. But back then, they were starting to become a bit more valuable, so it's probably worth a 1,500 quid or something back then. And then his mum rang me up and bollocked me for giving him a, uh, an old guitar. <laughs> she thought I'd like it. <laughs> you know. So anyway, he went on to be really successful, and he was in Busted for a bit in the – the band behind the three lads at the front, he was actually the one actually. Ah, okay. You know, so he was in that, and this guitar would go around the world. Then he was in a band called Son of Dork. So my guitar, and all the Little Angels fans would be like, why is Bruce's guitar in this pop punk band? <laughs> and then Chris ended up um, writing songs for Ed Sheeran's first album, and he's a, he's a writer now. Anyway, he rang me up and he said, this, this bloke's offered me six grand for your guitar, um, and I feel bad taking the money. Do you want to split it? which is very nice of him. And I said, now, I'll tell you what, can I have it back? This is 20 years on. Can I have it back and I'll give, I'll give you the three grams just straight to you? Um, 
So I got it back, for, sold it to him for 300 quid, got it back for three grand, but it was a bargain, you know, really. And then I got it out of the case and it just, you know, it was a very weird experience because I'd grown up with it, sat there. And then it'd gone for 20 years and it had come back, you know, and you could smell it. You could smell those gigs and the, and the kind of, it's an old grumpy old guitar. It's really hard to play. No one else, li no one else likes it, you know. That's a brilliant story, yeah. dude. That's yeah. amazing. It's a funny guitar, that. You know, I, I, if I just if I got rid of it, I wouldn't probably wouldn't play guitar at all. I would just wouldn't bother really. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, we saw you in. Um, oh, forgive me now, but you were you you were guest guitaring for a band in. Um, I think you want to think about Neville at Stone Death with um, Hand the Dimes. No, it was in Rambling Man. When you guess guitaring for someone, I should have done my research. This is bad. This is bad. I shouldn't have done this. Maybe, um, maybe. I'm not. My memory's quite bad. So me, and Shana, <laughs> me, me and Shana, my uh, the guitarist, um, were just looking at you, and he came up on the big screen, and my Shana was like, "Oh, look at that! That's that's incredible! That guitar. I love that guitar." It could so have did been. You all in? He was an artist, was he? Did yeah, he used to do all the old devil designs and that kind of thing. And uh, we just sat one night, and he was just scratching it away, and you know. Um, and all the paint came off, and then it stayed like that for like, you know, it's what is it? it must be forty odd years old now. That guitar, I suppose. You know? oh, that's incredible. I love it. Well, good guitars are rare. You know, that, that's the other thing that younger generation they miss out on because their reference point is these new guitars that you get, and they look great, but they're all grown with forested wood because you can't chop down rainforests anymore. You shouldn't. But there's a lot of difference between. Uh, I think that. Behind me, I've got a 1974 Les Paul, and you know that would have been naturally grown. I don't know if you can see it, can you? That the little cherry one in the corner. Oh, look at that! Um, that's a 74. So that would have been grown in a forest, chopped down, seasoned for several years, and you can't get wood like that now. No. So the guitars are different, you know. Yeah. yeah. Wow! What a brilliant story. I love that. I love that. How did you get into your first band then, Bruce? What what got you? It's like you. Um, we were at sixth form. So I, our sixth form college was separate to the school. So I turned up and I'd, I'd been playing fairly seriously for a bit. So I thought I was great, you know, and I wasn't, but I thought I was. <laughs> and, um, I'd played in the school band. So I started on saxophone and got bullied for that because, which I could cope with. But if you did music, you were gay. And that was a bad thing in Yorkshire in the 70s, according to popular opinion. And then you would be bullied. And so, so I had to keep my head down, doing anything artistic, you know, to sort of stop being, um, stop that. And then I ended up playing um, guitar in the school band, which is quite hard because it's like, it's jazzy stuff. So it's ching, 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 it's all that kind of thing. But in, in, it was an amazing start, but I always wanted to be in a proper band. And then I got to sixth form and I saw Toby walking about. Um, and I think he, th he thought he was great as well. So we organised this jam. <laughs> <laughs> and then it became, you know, we, we got on with it, you know, and we failed our A-levels, of course, but we had a transit van and we got going and we started playing the marquee pretty quick, you know. Wow. That's amazing, so, isn't it? So what was, what was the first moment where you thought, wow, this is my career now? This is where this, I've gone from just jamming... Yeah. 
I remember it very vividly, actually. It's a good question. And we, we used to play this little show in Scarborough called The Theatre in the Round. And it sold out. And then the next time we had to put two nights on, maybe about 200 people each time. And then, so we sold out two nights. And that was the night I thought, bloody hell, this is actually something could really go here. And then we booked another gig, which was a thousand capacity theatre. And we we had eight or 900 people in it. Scarborough's only got a population of 50,000. And most of them were retired. So, you know, we'd got half the towns of this gig, you know, and, that, and it, it was on its way then. And I think we... Having Jimmy in the band doing the keyboards, it just, we were the lighter end of the rock scene. So we were able to get on Radio 1. We maybe wouldn't, we never played um, Download or Donington back in the day, but we would play Milton Keynes Bowl. Um, so we would tour with Brian Adams and Bon Jovi, but we wouldn't do anything. You know, so we were allowed, we, we, we were comfortable being commercial because we loved that. And our favourite records were stuff like Rumours by Fleetwood Mac, Reckless, Elton John, as well as ACDC, Van Halen. And it's the mix of and that. All of us were quite comfortable with this kind of listening to Elton John, which is quite unusual for people our age at that time, you know. That sounds, that sounds very much like, I guess we got a really sort of um, a large sort of spectrum of music. Um, if it's good music, man, it's good music. But like... When you were doing those shows with Brian Adams, Bon Jovi, so what 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 type of arenas then is it? Yeah, man. Yeah, and stadiums, you know, and and yeah, but all the time, you know, so like that. But in '93, it was like it would be round Europe with Van Halen for six weeks or something, and whatever it was, and then then Bon Jovi, and then there'd be show, and you saw, as, you, as you're doing more and more, if you, if any big band came to the UK, it either was or Thunder or the Choir Boys supported them. And then the Choir Boys got embroiled in this kind of second album, which took them out of the game for a bit. They had bad advice, I always felt, from their, their um, A&R and publisher to sort of, they waited around for Bob Rock to make their record. It was the, the he just done the Motley Crue records, but it was just clearly the, wrong choice for the choir boys who were a rootsy rock and roll band, I felt. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, but yeah. They just had this huge record. I think it'd been number two in Canada and stuff like that. Doing really, really well. Much, much better than us. But then they were just knocked out for two years, waiting around for Bob Rock. Um, so it was either us or Thunder. So, you know, and then you were, all these huge bands were coming and we were supporting Aerosmith one minute and then ZZ Top the next. And then, you know, for it's a good way to spend your 20s. I mean, yeah. talking about Ireland, that was like, it made Motley Crue look like Richard and Judy, or Eddie did, the rest <laughs> of the band did, but Eddie was, and it was, it was the sort of stuff that, it doesn't really happen anymore like that, and there was a naivety to it, so there was a lot, by the last stage of Little Angels, in certain quarters of the band, including me, um, there was a lot of partying, but there was a naivety to it, that it was just a good time, and, and we, I felt that Basically, drugs were great, and anyone who said anything otherwise was just being a party pooper. Yeah. And, of course, when you're 24, 23, 24, they just bounce off you, don't you? And then it's all, you get to be a little bit into your later 20s, and you notice people start to come a cropper along the way, you know. But in that period, it was just a right laugh, you know. And and the excesses and the money, so you'd be you'd be – when we did the Van Halen one, which is the – the most ridiculous of all of them. They had this walkway 
in a sort of C shape that Sammy Hagar used to run around on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was um, a bar that Michael Anthony had, and there was a same at the other side of the stage. And when Eddie was doing his solos, we would watch from Michael Anthony's bit, and he would pour you and he'd say, do you want a drink? And he would, it would be half a pint of Jack Daniels and half a pint of Coke. Um, yes. And he'd, he'd be like a couple of them and that, that's, you know, that's that, but it's, it's every night, you know, and, and they've been doing it for years, you know. And it was, it was really ridiculous. And, and there's a cage for girls to dance in just for Michael Anthony, you know. <laughs> And it was all like that, you know, and, and but but you sort of get carried along with it. And then then of course you're doing all this for a few years, having a right old laugh. And then um it changes overnight with Kurt Cobain releasing Nevermind. <laughs> oh. so Jimmy, I remember Jimmy, the keyboard player, we we did the Bon Jovi tour and we they're lovely. All these bands, with the exception of Aerosmith, they were really uptight and a bit unpleasant. Everyone else was absolutely lovely. And uh, when we did the Bon Jovi thing, they invited us on their private jet because they knew we were just kids and we would blow our minds, you know. So one minute, Jim, he sat there with Richie Sambora drinking his champagne on the private jet. Six months later, we're out of a record. We had a number one album in 93. Six months later, we're out of a record deal. It's gone. Because fashion changed like... Like in a way that it doesn't do it anymore, but it was like you you couldn't be in a rock band overnight. It was just gone. It was like punk all over again, you know, with uh, Nevermind happening. So Jimmy yeah. had to get a job. Went from that and then to putting crisps on the shelf in Sainsbury's, you know, a bit later. And because um, you have to pay your bills, don't you? And, and as he was doing it, Bon Jovi comes on the tannoy because he's doing the early morning crisp shelf loading thing. Oh. You know? Oh. And he's like, can I get any worse? And then some other guy that he was working with recognised him and asked for his autograph. And he's like, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, that's how it goes, isn't it, for musicians? Yeah. Oh, man. Ups and downs, you know. But it's a great time to be alive, that. You know, that whole marquee scene. and You know, you, you, it's only the benefit of hindsight you look back and you go, well, we lived through some amazing times. You know, we did the first, well, we did the second show that Guns N' Roses did when they came to the UK in the marquee. Um, who was it did the first show? It'd be like, I can't remember. We got the second night and it's like, you, you, you only look, history's only when you look back. Yeah. I just thought they were pretty good and a bit interesting, and a bit loud and just another band, you know, and then, and then two years later, you're like, oh, okay. That's, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So they weren't, did you, didn't you think they were a bit special or do you just think, oh, there's just another band? You didn't see anything? You couldn't ignore it. And, yeah, you know, yeah. we got bad reviews, you know. Yeah. You know, I remember Dave Ling, who's, who's was, he's become a good friend, Dave Ling, because um, we were quite antagonistic with him. He was a journalist for Kerrang! And he used to not like little, like, oh, he used to always needle us a bit and, went, and I'd react to it like, a, like you know. <laughs> like a guy, you know. <laughs> years, and then we're all, of course, now we're all fine and not silly, you know. But um, I remember Dave Ling, you know, he always brings it off himself, but he gave him a really bad review. And I think big titles, Roses Don't Grow On You. And, you know, but that's a sign of something that's important, you know, it'll polarise opinion. Because he was punky again. Yeah. You know, it's the start of that rough around the edges thing, you know, again. And so it gets you a while to get your head around the fact that it's dangerous. It really is dangerous, you know. 
music so when, when you had that number one album and then you said six months later the record company dropped you it was a year or so maybe i maybe yeah but yeah very quickly after so yeah. how old were you at that point bruce i'd be 24 maybe and jimmy would be two years younger than me did you, you know, just think? Did you think? Um, okay, I'm still young. I can still join another band. I can do it all again. What, what was the head? What was your headspace and that? Because well, you've gone from there to there. The issue with music is nothing's ever good enough, is it? So yeah. I remember bringing up um, Cooler Shaker was managed by Kevin Nixon. He's managed Little Angels, and they'd have got a number two was it single with Hush. Yeah, Hush had gone in at number two. Yeah, and I rang up. It was like a morgue. Because they, they wanted it to be number one. And I'm like, God, how, how bad that we're disappointed that it's number two. But yeah, if it's some number one, the next day you're like, well, where do we go from that? You know, so nothing's ever quite right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so yeah. and I've never had a problem. I don't see my identity wrapped up in the guitar or doing gigs or if people know who I am or not. So I found the transition into normal life a bit easier than some. And, We've been involved in the colleges. I've often employed bands, people who've been in bands as teachers, and I've noticed some people really struggle with that kind of, if you believe that narrative, I'm a rock star and I'm important, well, that, you, that's going to come back to bite you because we're all just people, aren't we? And we, you know, you might create this thing, that showbiz, you're telling you, you invented this thing, aren't you? Yeah. You're that's, um, but you're not really that you know and that's with Aerosmith I think Aerosmith are the only real big stars that I met who really believe that they are that right. you know they're fallen yeah. for their own thing great as they are and I love them I love the records but as people they've kind of gone wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah no this is it's funny you should say that because I never I never looked at it that way before but there's people that we know that have had yeah. great success in the industry yeah. and that are just that and that it, they lose their identity they think well that's who i am but as yeah. you said well you kind of know that was yeah. your job at that point you know it's a it's, a, it's um, an expression it's, it's a part of you but yeah. if that's your be all and end all yeah that's hard to come back well, from nonsense. and it's very tough for young people because um many young people have this idea i've got to make it all my life's make it in inverted commas all my life's not worth living and you're like well you you know, you're looking for this thing that you think of as success. But you've got to be careful what you wish for because all you might get it, and all success is, is more shit going on in a short space of time. So, you know, if you're doing a gig to 200 people, it becomes 2,000 people, becomes 20,000, becomes, you know, whatever you want. So that's, that's more... It's more activity, it's more people to employ, it's more stuff going wrong, it's more bad reviews, because for everyone that likes you, there's 20 people who don't like you, so there's more of all that. I mean, imagine being Beyonce this morning, you know, you wake up, what's gone on over line? You've probably got to have four lawyers just dealing with some nonsense, and, and so your life becomes different, and if you've got any sort of sense of, insecurity or anxiety, it's only going to magnify because everything's magnified, which is why I think you might get um, this, this, this spate of recent suicides that we had. Yeah. yeah. Artists, you know, and you're like, why would they do it? Well, that's why they do it because their life's become not worth living, you know, and, and, and they're so caught up in, in the anxiety of it all. 
And actually, you can have a, you know, success is living a happy life, um, being well, being creative. And my experience of doing, I don't know, biggest gig I did was in the UK would be Cardiff Arms Park. <laughs> it was with Brian Adams. And it was bloody brilliant. But it was only the same as a pub gig in that I played well by my standards. I played well on that show and the communication was great with the lads. So we enjoyed the gig. It's just the same as you would in a pub. And then did Wembley Arena with Aussie, um, played badly, so I didn't enjoy it. And there's that my level of personal happiness went from there to there. And in the pub, it would have gone from there to there. Yeah. 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 That's beautifully put, man. Just because you're playing Wembley doesn't mean that's your best gig. Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. No, you know, it's just... And you appreciate it, you know, but it's not the be-all and the end-all. Um and there's plenty of miserable people with a lot of success and a lot of money, you know. Plenty yeah. of happy people without any of them things, you know. Yeah. I, I could have definitely done with that advice. That's why I think what you're doing now and being so approachable is amazing. I could have done with that advice probably in my mid-20s, late-20s, because, like, when we left school, Shane knows more than anyone. I was just – I was fixated on making it. And I kept using that term, so it's brilliant how you say that, because I, I tell younger bands now, you know, it's not about making it. Do you know it's what I mean? It. It's no such thing, is it? <laughs> it's like, oh, you know. Crazy, man. I, I built it up. I don't know whether it was an old school term that was kind of drummed into me from older musicians, because we did we did pay attention to a lot of older musicians when we were younger, didn't we, Shane? As in, like, you know, and we always absorbed their knowledge. And, and yeah. I don't know whether I got caught in that in that term of making it, but you're completely right. I mean, when I turned like 30, I kind of had an epiphany of I've got everything yeah. and anything that happens now is a bonus in life, you know? And, and like the band, we've always had that foundation. I mean, I'm wishing when we started, it, it was always the case of this can only get better and work more and more, but we still have this. We still have each other. We've, you know, we've all come back. We're all mates. We've got that history together. We, we enjoy the music that we're actually doing. We're not doing it yeah. just because we're trying to, I don't know, trying to make everybody else happy. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. So, you can lose it. You know, success can beat it out of you. It did for us with angels. We didn't bloody speak for 20 years. So anyway, one of us died when Mike Lee died and we literally haven't seen each other. We haven't been in the same space. So we met at his funeral. That's really heavy when you've spent all, you know, eight, nine years in, in a transit van together. Then you don't speak for 20 years, then you meet and someone's coming in a box, you know. Um, and so we just got over the shock of seeing each other and the bloody hearse turns up, you know. Yeah. So you don't you don't forget that stuff. And that's like, we just looked at each other and went, this is ridiculous. And we've been very close like you guys ever since. Yeah. You know? And you know, there's a great line in the Eagle song. Take it easy, where he says, "Don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy." Mm. Which is, we we make a problem out of living, we make a problem out of being in a band, and it's the noise of our wheels that does it. It's like it's it's you know you get sort of a bee in your bonnet about something, and you get a repetitive niggle about it, and so and so is annoying you. It, it doesn't really exist. You've concocted it yourself, you know. Yeah, and that's the problem with bands, isn't it? It's um, a happy band is a good thing if, if everyone's getting together, you know. That's that's always been our thing, man. I say to the boys yeah. all the time, the only people that matter is the five people in that room. Yeah. And if and if one of us got a problem, we say it to the, the other four and, yeah. and, and we, we 
we don't let other people outside the band dictate what should happen and shouldn't happen. Yeah. Um, it's us first, then then it gets added, evolves into something else via someone else. But it's yeah, I, the, the genius thing is that you'll still be doing this when you're 75, when you're 85, if you want it, and no one can stop you doing it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's the great thing about now compared to when we got dropped by Polydor. And we went, oh, we just have number one album, we'll get another deal, and no one wanted to touch us because it was all old, you know, on to the next thing. There was no social media, there was nowhere to go with it. You were done. But um, we had 100,000 fans still then, you know, that just bought the album. So imagine if you had that now, you know, and, and I always say to people now, you know, if Angels wants to now keep going, or, or we, if I, we want to do a gig in 10 years, we can do it. No one can stop you, you know. Yeah. There's no gatekeeping, is there? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Bruce, because when Toby Jepson was on, <laughs> he, gave us, he gave us a little bit of an exclusive. Saying, be a reunion. Well, we were, we were on about it, but um, then COVID came along, and it came, yeah. along, you know, and um, I mean, we chat all the time now. You know, yeah. it's weird. We literally didn't speak, and it wasn't like we super fell out. It's just like just a bit, you know, with each other, and you know, you got to go on and do other things and. We chat all the time now, so I think Toby's got an idea for um, some shows and maybe even a kind of live in the studio type record. Fantastic. I don't know. I haven't played for a long time. Um, <laughs> I don't like just picking the guitar up and having a go. I have to sort of invest in it, you know, and I have to make it, you know, that feeling when it sort of is comfortable, it's part of you. Yes. You know, know memory. It all comes back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, if you abuse it and you don't play, I mean, I'm around guitars all the time, you know, and chatting about it and watching players and that, and it's in my head kind of thing. But I, I do sort of think, um, how long can you get away with? I'm 52 now, and I've got this thing in my hand that my granddad had um, called Jupiter's Contractor, where you, your fingers start to do that. Oh, oh never. But at the moment, it's in my picking hand. Um, and it's not in this hand, but you know, it, it, I'm quite young to get it, so you know, I might not be able to do it. I don't know. I've played for you a couple of years, you know. You, you can't take these things for granted, can you, in life? So I think you're it's not, a lot for it. You, you're right, mate. Yeah, but yeah, there's yeah. a lot of the Crow family here and comments saying that um, it's got to be done. <laughs> yeah, literally, as he's talking about it, do it, do it, do it, please, please, please. <laughs> well, um, I think we, I'm sure we will, and um. We were. It was going to be twenty-one because it was thirty years since the Young Gods, Young Gods album, which was the second album. Yes. Um, which would have made sense, you know, to go play them tunes and that. But um, we'll see. You know, I think um, twenty-two or twenty-three would work. There's always a some anniversary, in there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like this thirty years since Jam, or you know. Yeah, forty. By the time we get around to do it, it'll probably some fortieth anniversary. You know, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, Bruce, I can't thank you enough for joining us tonight, mate. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Such insight. I'm, I'm sure everybody's enjoyed. I can see all the comments now. Everybody watching has enjoyed it so much. Thank you so much, man, for joining us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. It's a right laugh. I can't believe the hours just flown by. <laughs> I know, dude. Yeah, really yeah. Good luck with I'm the band. Good I'm looking forward to when things settle down, Bruce. Me and um, me and the boys will pop down and see you if that's all right. It'd be great yeah, to come around. I'd, be, I'd love yeah. that. There's an open invitation. We have a venue on the seafront as well. If you want to do a show, we can talk about that. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah good stuff.
Thanks so much, Bruce. Take care. Bruce, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Crowcast Podcast. Don't forget, this episode is also available to watch on our YouTube channel. For up-to-date information on everything Crows, follow us on all our socials or visit our website, thosedamncrows.com. Tidy. Ta-da!